Welcome to the Particle Podcast, where we talk about science and the people that just love it. I'm Rose. I'm a biologist, broadcaster, and before today, the most I knew about dinosaurs was what I learnt from Jurassic Park. And appropriately, today I'm joined by Liam Olden. He's an enthusiastic paleontologist and science communicator who loves a pun. We had a chat about becoming a paleontologist, feathers on dinosaurs, drop bears, and licking rocks. Hope you enjoy. Hi, Liam. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Rose. Thank you for having me. Tell me, what does a paleontologist like yourself actually do? So a paleontologist is quite simple. If you think of yourself as a kid, you know, you're always running around playing with dinosaurs and digging and eating sand. As a paleontologist, I get to do this for a living. <laughs> it's sand. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sand, yeah. So uh, generally uh, there's, there's different types of paleontology. Um, so there's different backgrounds. So you can have like a biology paleontologist, what we call a paleobiologist, or you can have a geology paleontologist, so a paleogeologist. So I'm, I'm the second category, so I did a um, start off with as a sedimentologist, so I understand and study sediments. And this is really important as we need to understand what different environments did our organisms and our fossils live in before they got preserved. Mm. Yeah. So while you're at uni, yes. when you were kind of starting out, what did that look like? What was the base knowledge you had to form before you could go, I am a paleontologist? So there is no easy way to become a paleontologist. Uh, you cannot just go and study it. So what you have to do is you have to get a background. As I mentioned, you know, you either go in through the biology route or you can go through an earth science route. So I took the earth sciences route because I love rocks. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. I'm just, have you, were you one of those kids that had a rock collection? Oh, honey, I still have one. <laughs> <laughs> My house is full. Like people think... Like, oh, yeah, you know, I, I warned him before he come, up, like, come over for, like, a barbecue. I was like, hey, just just heads up. i got rocks everywhere. They're like, oh, sure, okay. And then they come in, and they're like, oh, damn. And then, like, you know, you go into my bedroom, and, like, chest of drawers are covered in fossils and rocks. You open my cupboard, and they're just rocks <laughs> falling out on you. <laughs> but why rocks? I understand, you know, kids that love animals because they're cute. I loved plants probably because my name is Rose and I didn't have a choice in the matter. What was it about rocks that really captured your interest? Well, Rose, it's quite simple. They simply rock. Oh. Yeah, exactly. Woo! I feel physical pain. Physical pain over physical that Physical pain over that. Oh, no. It's, as I said, you know, it's about understanding the world around you. You know, you see a different type of rock and you go, oh, my God, that's, you know, this. And some of them are absolutely gorgeous. You know, you look at some metamorphic rocks and they, uh, you know, lots of pretty colours and things like that, you know. Fossils are awesome because you get to... Ba it's basically like a window back in time, but rather than, you know, you're in a little time machine, you're looking back, you know, just a couple of minutes or something, or, you know, you look at in a mirror and it's like, that's what I looked like when I was sleeping. Is it because it's like a window into the past that you like it so much? Exactly, yeah. You know, the rocks and earth sciences and fossils provides us information about not only the past but and like past 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 like billions of years of past but also the future you know what could things are we going to merge into another massive supercontinent we probably will in a couple of million years we probably won't be here for it but you know we probably will be another massive supercontinent what will that mean for earth's climate things like that yeah do you have a favorite <laughs> rock that you own oh, 
It, is it like you picking have to be- do this too? You know, you- <laughs> <laughs> might be like picking between your children. It is. Mm. Or like today, what's your favorite? Sometimes that's the question I like to ask mm. people when I ask them their favorite of something and they can't pick. I say, what's your favorite today? And I promise you can change tomorrow. It's not. You're not disowning any yeah. of your children. Ooh, okay, so favorite rock type is sedimentary rocks. So that's uh, rocks that are made up of sediment. So if you think of like uh, beach sand and all that. Once that gets compacted together, like the limestone that you use to build walls around your garden, rocks like that. So that's my favourite type of rock. Okay. In terms of fossils in my own collection, so I specialise in microbialites. And so I have a a fossilised stromatolite, which is cyanobacteria. Just jumping in for a second, in case you didn't know, microbialites are colonies of bacteria living together. A stromatolite is a type of microbialite that has a layered internal structure. So if you think about it like a layered cake, you've got a layer of the bacteria and then another layer comes on top and as the layers build up, the bottom layers actually end up fossilising. And this one's around about 260 million years old and is very much possibly the first recorded occurrence of cyanobacteria throughout a complete stromatolite, which is amazing. How did you get it? How did I get it? So this is um, actually part of my research. Oh. So yeah, yeah. So we um, heard about some stromatolites in the middle area of Western Australia. And so we basically decided to go up there and investigate and do a little bit of work on them. Um, and so while sampling all that, we tried to figure out their age a little bit better because they previously originally thought to be part of the Permian mass extinction. So the mass extinction that led to the evolution of dinosaurs. Uh, so throughout my research, we found that this probably wasn't the case, that they were probably much older than that. So Permian, so just before that mass extinction event. But while we were doing some study of these, we found these really unusual structures within them. And so this is really unique as, you know, I coming into this paleontology field, I thought, oh, cool, we've got fossilised bacteria. And then in having a chat with other specialists on this subject, they basically said, no, you can't get fossilised bacteria. It's very difficult, especially not the amount I had. Mm. And so we decided to try and figure out what were these structures. And after a a lot of money and time and research and trying to convince people, we've decided that, yeah, this is fossilised bacteria throughout a complete stromatolite. Wow. Yeah. Going back to university for a second. So you started your undergrad in a more geology space? Yeah. So I did a um, what we call an applied geology degree. So um, my degree was very hands-on. So I spent a lot of the time outdoors, walking around, looking at rocks, sampling, trying to understand the geology of the region. Yeah. And when you say you study the geology of a rock, I've heard geologists called rock lickers before. Do you in fact lick rocks? I can 100% confirm that we do lick rocks, <laughs> and it is a lot of fun. Why? <laughs> why do you lick rocks? Why not, Rose? No. <laughs> why not lick those rocks? <laughs> is it so then you can see? I was under the I was under the impression it was so you could see the colour of the rock if you cleaned it. Yeah. So there there are a lot of um, actual really useful tools of licking a rock. So um, as you mentioned, when we uh, wet a rock. Usually we can actually pick out a lot of features that you would not normally be able to see without a wet surface. So it's like uh, you might see polished rocks in the shops. Mm. We're essentially doing the same thing, but with our saliva, Yeah. the joys. Um, another great way is, so being a sedimentologist, is sometimes it's really difficult to tell the size of grains. So in, in sediment, so if we think about like the beach and things like that, they can grains can reach range, you know, up to big boulder style, 
all the way down to finer than you can see with the human eye. So this becomes really difficult then to try and, when we're on the fly, to try and identify the sizes. Otherwise we have to take the sample back to us to the lab and then re-analyze it and that becomes a lot of work. So what we do, <laughs> I can see you smiling now. <laughs> what we do is we get the rock or a piece of sand and we rub it on our teeth. What? Yeah. So you can uh, kind of do the same thing with your nails, except I don't like rubbing my nails off. So I said, I just choose to destroy my teeth. But a bit, yeah. That must be so bad for your teeth though. Doesn't it hurt or scratch them? No, yeah, but it does, yeah, scratch. So basically what you can feel is if it's nice and smooth, we call it, clay it's clay size so that means less than let's get this right 180 micron yeah okay very small very fine very very fine and then the other one is what we call silt so you can it's you know it looks very smooth to the touch and everything you rub it on your teeth and it feels a little bit gritty you know if you forget to you know you've been out fishing you have a nice piece of fish and you've forgotten to wash it properly, or you know something and there's a little bit of grit in there and that's what it feels like on in your teeth or if you're washing around your mouth, yeah. Which rock tastes the best? <laughs> I don't think any rock tastes well. <laughs> like, very nice. <laughs> Fine. I was hoping for a secret rock that was a good snack. Uh, a, right. a secret rock. Oh, yeah, no. Well, but, but animals do leak um, rocks that are rich in salts, obviously, because the salts and minerals are good for them and all that. So you will see some animals just going along licking rocks oh how cute yeah protogeologists oh, what, the, what does the proto stand for in proto that? means pre oh yeah yeah so it's before something so if i say uh for example rose if you're a protogeologist yeah it means you're doing things of a geologist but you're not a geologist yet oh yeah like yeah. a prototype but a prototype yeah and so we actually um have this really cool term so that actually pops up throughout our geological classifications as well um, so when we understand Earth time, we have different time intervals, uh, and one of them is called the Protozoic. Mm. So proto meaning pre, zoic means life. Oh. So we have Protozoic pre life, Phanerozoic life, oh, and then we also have Mesozoic middle life and Cenozoic new life. And so what happened after you did your undergrad? What did you have to do then to kind of step up and level up in geology? Uh, so after I did my uh, undergraduate, so I was basically a qualified geologist now, I decided to do an honours degree, which is a one-year extension of the undergraduate, but it's more research-focused. So I did that on my actual current research topic of the stromatolites. And so this is kind of where we start bringing in more of the paleontology. So during your undergraduate, you do do a little bit of paleontology, depending on what universities you are. You know, each university has their specialities, things like that. But now we can start specialising. And so that's what I did. I started specialising in paleontology. and But tr- using the paleontology, rather than just to understand the organism, to try and understand how Earth has changed over time as well. What do you think your inspiration was to move into that area of research? Ooh. <laughs> was it something that you'd always been interested in since you were a kid? Yeah, like, you know, as I said, you know, I'm a a kid that never grew up I as a child you know everyone wants to be a paleontologist I never gave up on that dream I I continued I used to walk around um the farm as a kid so I'm a farmer originally and you know I'd find rocks and you know bones and I'd bring them back thinking they were dinosaurs 
and then my old man would go and throw them back out in the paddock again for the <laughs> next day and off I'd go again and Aww. yeah they're just you know the passion the enthusiasm for science continued throughout before I could read I was picking up uh, big scientific ex- encyclopedias and just looking at the diagrams of yeah. different things in it so yeah it's you know it's a passion that's continued with me and I've been really fortunate that you know I have swayed this way and that way, you know, it's like, oh, is this what I want to do? And then I try something else out there. I'm like, no, that I'm definitely a paleontologist in my heart. Yeah, yeah. that's good to know. Yeah. It's like your little science identity. Yeah. <laughs> I wear it with a badge of pride. Yeah. <laughs> Did you come from a scientific family? No. So um, I'm actually from a very long, long, long generation farming family. So, yeah, so, so much farmers that... Uh, my dad's side of the family were farmers and came across as convicts and my mum's side of the family were also farmers but came across as soldiers and my parents met farming and yeah (laughs) my sister and I are the only ones in the whole family to not farm did you do you think that your family had an influence on your love of paleontology do you think that they fostered your love of science because it's interesting that you were in an environment that isn't necessarily deemed scientific in a way but you had this sense of exploration. Yeah, so you'd actually be surprised. A lot of um, regional areas, you know, you, you do have that, that fascination with Earth around you, you know, Earth sciences. And so that, that you know, I being on a farm, I got to see um, sediment movement in practice. Ah. I got to see, you know, outcropping of different types of rocks and, I'm you know, go and pick them up and try and understand things. I still, every time I go home to the farm, my dad has a pile of rocks there for me to identify. Oh. Usually it's mostly just, like, the one rock. (laughs) It's like, Dad, that's just quartz or something, you know, (laughs) mineral. But, you know, it's interesting. So there's always, you know, the um, neighbouring farms uh, have fossilised wood on their property and always, you know, interested in asking questions. So that's the thing, you know, it's, yes, you know, I did come from a a non-scientific background growing up, but, you know, there was definitely plenty of opportunity there. And, and that's the thing, all around us, science is all around us. So if you are interested in science, especially earth sciences, all you have to do is look at your feet, look up, look around. It's all there. Yeah, yeah. and that, having that curiosity to explore, I suppose. Exactly, the curiosity. Yeah, apparently as a child, you know, um, I, was, I was a very lovely child. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> two things that would never happen to... Well, one thing that would have never happen to that, I used to walk off with strangers um, in bookshops and they'd buy me dinosaur books. Yeah, I like they. I, I walk. I just walk off with random people, and I take a book to them, like because I like <laughs> books, just looking at diagrams and things. And apparently, a lot of the books, like childhood books, I have at my uh, home house, old like family home, is all books bought by strangers. <laughs> yeah, because they liked this kid who really wanted the dinosaur book. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then you know, and then the second one's you know, I um. I, I apparently used to be uh, sat in front of David Attenborough as a child, as a baby. Maybe this is what influenced it. Maybe, yeah. Maybe. So I have heard that when I do big talks and things, I do sound like David Attenborough. <laughs> so, you know, may, maybe. Maybe. Maybe this could be it. But, I, you know, I'd sit down apparently as a baby watching documentaries and things, and I'd be so happy, like, you know, put on cartoons, and I would be crying and all that, put on documentary. I'm all happy. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, you know, monkey fell out of the boat. Oh, I'm crying. Monkey's back in the boat. I'm all good now. And like, you know. (laughs) And your research area is pretty specific. How long have you been in that research area? Uh, Two years. (laughs) Yeah, so not too long. (laughs) Are there many people that study what you study? Um, Yes and no. There are 
a couple around uh, ish. <laughs> so it it is quite a unique field. So um, as I mentioned, you know, paleontology is a small field in itself, and then when we start studying separate things so you know a group of people will study a certain type of dinosaur and then some people will just study how to name a dinosaur so there's lots of us ish but there's very little pockets of study in especially specialist areas so mine being cyanobacteria and fossilized stromatolites but i work mostly in the mesozoic phanerozoic so when there's a lot of life around there's other microbial people and stromatolite people that work at the earliest life. So I've got a um, colleague, Kath Gray, who's actually the world expert on this uh, topic and was one of the people that's been working on the 3.64 billion year old stromatolites wow. in Western Australia. So oldest evidence of life on earth. Wow, and in it's in WA. WA. In WA, yeah. WA is really fortunate. We not only have the oldest example of life on earth, we have uh, Sharp Bay, which is a World Heritage listed area that actually contains stromatolites and is the best, other than the Bahamas, the best occurrence of these and used a lot to try and understand what life was like back in early Earth, but also to try and look for life on other planets. Oh, that's exciting. It is very exciting. What did life look like at that really early stage? At the really early stage? Yeah. Single cells. So um, what's really cool is, you know, we think about Earth as, you know, as a clock. Right, so in time, people probably can't see my hands right now. <laughs> but, Liam but, is gesturing in a yeah, timeline yeah. fashion. <laughs> Arms radiating around. So at 12 o'clock, Earth forms. Okay, and is let's see if we can get this right. So we go down to 3.64 billion years ago. And so that's around, what are we, 1.30, around 2 o'clock, I think. And so that's when we get the first life. Complex, so that's single-celled organisms. And so these developed photosynthesis. So without this, these, there would be no other life on Earth. So they, we have everything to thank due, due to bacteria. So every time you see bacteria, I say thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> but then these organisms dominated 80% of life on Earth. So it wasn't until, let's get this right, around, uh, I think it's about... 500, maybe 600 million years ago when we got first complex life, so wow. multicellular. So that, that shows you, you know, they have about 3 billion years on everything else. Mm. in, And the fact that they still exist today, they've ne- not gone extinct at all. Wow. Yeah. So what do they, when you're doing your research and you're looking for evidence of early life, mm-hmm. what does that look like? Uh, it's actually really easy to see. So... Um, Obviously, cells are really small, and especially bacteria. But when they come together, so this is what we're looking at. We're looking for colonies of cells. And so these are our microbialites, our stromatolites, colonies of bacteria. And these actually form very big structures. So the largest in the world preserved stromatolite, I think, is over five metres tall. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So mine aren't that big. Mine get up to bit over two and a half meters which is still massive considering you know that, that these are composed of tiny little cells but yeah that's how do you know how many cells are in like a two and a half meter tall stromatolite <laughs> is it no. possible to know <laughs> no and when you test them how do, like are you taking a sample and like looking at under a microscope what does your research actually entail in terms of that field work and testing things out yeah so uh, you can't exactly test living ones anymore uh, because they are heritage listed and so few and far between and protected. 
so with uh, fossilized stromatolites, uh, exactly what you mentioned, you know, we try and take a sample as much as possible. When it's a two and a half meter size, mm. we take a photo. <laughs> but yeah, you, we usually try and, you know, if there's that big two and a half meter size and then there's a couple of smaller ones around it, you know, we might cut some of the smaller ones out. We'll take it back into a processing lab. We'll then proceed to slice them up into slabs and determine what are the things that we're trying to identify. So if I have a sample and it has a couple of areas of interest, so I'm going to go, okay, so we block those areas of interest out and we send them off to get turned into what we call a thin section. So that is essentially a piece of glass slide with the rock resin onto it. And then the rock is planed down to 30 micron thickness. Wow. Yeah. So thinner than a piece of hair. Like it's, yeah. yeah. Really tiny. Really tiny. Very fragile. <laughs> yeah. And then we can put that instrument, those uh, thin sections under microscopes and um, regular microscopes, optical microscopes or uh, electron microscopes is what I've been using a lot of recently. Yeah. And what are you looking for? Anything. 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 Yeah. So we use thin sections a lot. Uh, so... For me as a paleontologist, I look a lot at the shapes of the organisms, uh, different types of preservation. So how did that organism get preserved? So we can look at different minerals and try and understand what times they came into the setting. And then we can basically unwind it. It's like undoing a jigsaw puzzle or putting mm. one together. In fact, you know, we, we have one piece. It's like, okay, okay, let's go next and next and next. And so we're taking steps. We're not trying to just jump in and understand everything at once. It's we're taking a very methodological approach to this. Yeah. So the goal of the research is to find stuff out that we really just don't know about the history of Earth. Yeah, that's that's science and research to a T. You know, we're constantly asking questions, and that's you know, we will answer those questions. Sometimes we are wrong. I can confirm my um my honors work. I did it. I um was going to publish it. I presented it at a conference even. And then I decided that doing my uh, doing some further research, I wanted to continue researching that topic before actually publishing it um, with a scientific journal. And I ended up going back out there and found out that everything I had done the year before was completely wrong. <gasps> I know. Did you cry? No. Oh, I think. But I that's might science. Have. Yeah. That's science. It's so exciting, you know, because you know we went out there, we spent three or four days out in the field looking at an area. And then when uh, I managed to get a grant to give us a bit more money to go back out there again. And so we set up, it's like, okay, we've been to this area. We want to check it again because we think we might have missed something. So we didn't have a lot of time. We had three days in the field and essentially four months to write up this research originally. So not a lot of time. So it, the more time we have, the better research we can get out. And so we got some more money. We had a lot more time. So we went and spent another two weeks out in the field and we discovered a lot. So originally these... um. Stromatolites were known from about uh, six square kilometers. We pushed it out to over 24 square kilometers. Yeah, wow. With it likely going much, much further, um, we pushed the unit thickness. So, you know, originally it was only thought to be a couple of meters thick. It thought, think it's much bigger. We've rechanged the age of the sequence. They thought it was early Triassic as part of big mass extinction. We think it's older, likely Permian. Uh, yeah, the list goes on. And that's the thing, you know, we, we present and I did a conference at the end of, well, midway to end of 2019. And I got up and I said, many people here have probably heard of, you know, seen a similar presentation to this. You know, I did one last year. I'm here to tell you that I was wrong. Wow. And that's science. That's good science is when, you know, we're happy to admit we're wrong. We, As long as we provide enough scientific evidence to say, hey, this is wrong. This is a better analysis and idea. 
things like that, then that's science. Yeah, we continue with that. And continuously building. And continuously building. Yeah, science never stops. You know, we, we can, some, one person will come up with one idea and then, you know, someone might not like my work and they might publish something else that, you know, might contradict my work a bit and then, you know, but their science might be valid as well. And so that shows that we just need to do more work into this field to try and figure out what's going on. Yeah. Do you see yourself doing research in this field for the rest of your life? Oh, not specifically on microbialites, just in paleontology. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, continuing to do my research and, you know, doing talks about it and just getting people excited about science. That's why I'm here today. Why should people care specifically about paleontology? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so uh, there's a lot of uh, different ways we can look at this. So one of the big things is with the paleontology, we can understand how organisms used to live. If we can understand how organisms used to live, how life adapted to get where we are today, we can get an idea of where things might be going in the future. Um, some of the stuff I do, so I do paleoenvironmental reconstruction. So that... Can you say that? <laughs> yeah. Slowly. Paleo. Paleo environmental reconstruction. So wow. Paleo means old, environmental, environment, reconstruction. So I'm reconstructing old environments. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> it's a... It's a little bit easier once I break it down. But basically what I'm doing is I'm using fossils and the geology to try and understand what did the environment of Earth look like at different times throughout Earth's lifespan. So that, you know, that that's really important as well. So, um, you know, trying to understand what might be going on, especially with the climate change going on today. Also, um, one of the really cool things that's going on with um, paleontology right now is this thing called de-extinction. Have you heard of it at all? Yes, but... Yes. Please explain it if Please someone explain. hasn't heard of it before. So, uh, I'm sure we've all watched uh, Jurassic Park, yeah? Yeah, yeah Jurassic, Jurassic Park, Park, Jurassic World. So, we're not that extreme. Um, and so, we're actually already doing it today, which is surprising, yeah? Uh, so, the the best example I can think of at the moment is the Yellowstone National Park in America. Mm-hmm. So, when the English colonised America and all that, they decided to uh, drive a lot of the local wolf populations away because it inhibited agriculture endangered populations, whereas the local Americans, you know, lived synonymous with them. Um, so and then what ha- has happened is basically the, the deer population ran, was it rampant? That's the word. Yeah. So it was just exploded, o- got lots exploded, of them. Exploded. Yeah. Overpopulated, you know, and you know, that, that, that's the thing, Rose, as a botanist, you'd understand, you know, we have a lot of herbivores and grazers. What happens to the plants? Yeah, if you take them away, or if you've got too many. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got too, plants, too, yeah. yeah. We got too many grazers. The yeah. plants are in crisis now if we the plants are in crisis soil's no longer stabilized yeah. then if soil's not stabilized we lead to erosion soil degradation landscape degradation and then that has impacts for aquatic life as we're pushing sediments into the water it's a domino effect mm. just because we moved one organism from the system so guess what they've done recently <laughs> you can tell me i, <laughs> I want to know <laughs> <laughs> they put the rules back in wow and behold everything's stabilized yeah yeah so it's, it's kind of like a seesaw you know everything needs to be in balance so they went extinct in that area and brought back it, it, it wasn't it's not a, a true extinction yes yeah so like a localized extinction is that the idea yeah ba- basically um Caucasian people uh, drove them to local regional extinction in that area. So there was no more wolves living in that area. And so that's the big thing about what we're doing with climate change and trying to understand the science behind it is we can see in the paleontological record when things, when the ecosystem isn't balanced, everything goes out of whack. 
there's a lot of pressure on everything, organisms go extinct, and that leads to biotic crises, mass extinctions. Really, really difficult. Yeah. So is it safe to say that people should care about paleontology because although it's looking at the past, it can help you determine <laughs> what's happening now and what might happen in the future? Yeah, but it could also help us in the future. So um, back to the good old Jurassic Park, uh, using DNA. So we uh, permafrost is a really great... So that's basically ice and soil okay. together. And so that's a really good way to preserve things. And so we've actually found complete mammoths preserved. Wow. Yeah. Like the whole big mammoth. Whole mammoths. What? How is and a baby whole big mammoths and yeah. How is a whole big mammoth just hanging out and no one noticed? <laughs> Where like was it underground? Yeah, it gets stuck in the permafrost. Wow. Yeah, it, it's absolutely awesome. It's like uh, if we put food in the freezer, it preserves it, right? It gets frostbite and things like that. If we leave it in there for years and years and years, but it's still there. We'll take it out. We'll defrost it. It'll still defrost. Mm. It won't be as nice. So maybe let's not have a mammoth steak, but you know, it's, it's still there. And so the cool thing is that their habitat actually still exists today. In a similar state. Ah, here we go. Yeah. (laughs) In a not so similar state because very much like removing the wolves from Yellowstone National Park, when the mammoths went extinct, the ecosystem became unbalanced. Mm. And so permafrost started melting. And then plants, you know, start losing. Uh, so the ground's no longer hard enough for plants to have stabilised root systems. Everything's kind of slush. When permafrost melts, it actually releases uh, greenhouse gases into the oh. atmosphere as well, methanes, things like that. And so the idea is if we were to reintroduce the mammoth, so bring it back, so we'd have to cross it with a Asian elephant, long-haired wow. Asian, so that's the closest living relative to the mammoth. Um, and basically reintroduce it back into that area, they compact the ground and restabilize it. Wow. Yeah, so that ecosystem's only become unstabilized because we removed the stabilizing factor. Do you think realistically that's something that as a society we're going to be able to do ethically or do you think there's going to be too much backlash and maybe not be able to actually get off the ground? That That's a really interesting question, Rose, and that's that's kind of what's impeding this scientific uh, forward push, um, you know, you know, there, there, there are groups that, you know, think that it's ethically, un, you know, not right for us to bring back organisms. And I agree. I don't think we should bring back things that, you know, don't belong. Um, I completely agree with that. But with something that, you know, humans have had a direct impact of, you know, uh, Tasmanian tiger in Australia, great example. We drove it to extinction um, with the fires over east at the moment. You know, a lot of uh, species are going on the criti- critically endangered. You know, testing out this science could, theoretically, you know, bring back organisms that we as humans were the direct cause for their extinction. You know, and so we may not have been the direct cause of the mammoth extinction, but we definitely did have an influencing factor. I think a lot of scientists can agree that at least we did have an an impact on them. You know, depending on the the amount, because it wasn't really a predator until we decided to hunt them. Yeah. And they're good. They provided a lot of food, <laughs> which is great for our evolution. But, you know, so there, there is that, that ethics. But, you know, that's I think that's a chat we need to have as a society as well, as well as the scientific body, you know, chat. It's like, what is the ethics behind it? But all science, we have to... Um, anything to do with genetics. Uh, so I don't have to do it because I'm dealing with uh, fossils and things like that. But any people that deal with um, human biology and things like that, 
uh, you have to go through a very, 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 very extensive and ethics review, code of conducts, uh, yeah, the, the list goes on. So it is a discussion that needs to be had, I think. But I, I, I hope one day we will be able to do it, yeah. It'll be, be exciting at the very least. It will be least. really exciting, yeah, absolutely exciting, to bring back species, you know, that rightfully should be living here with us, not, you know, just a name in a book, yeah. Oh, it'll be interesting to see if we end up one day with dinosaurs. <laughs> maybe not. Uh, yeah, <laughs> ma- ma- maybe not. It, uh, DNA doesn't last that long. <laughs> Are there any misconceptions about paleontology or maybe paleontologists? Because a lot of people, the only paleontologist they know of is Ross from Friends. <laughs> yeah. Is he a good representative? <laughs> um surprisingly a little bit actually um we do you know we do go to um we do give talks at uh, universities and all that so ross obviously ran a class in paleontology um i think ross was a dinosaur specialist though so he but as i mentioned you know there's so many different fields so there'll actually be a big team of people teaching a unit and things like that so i work at um kurt university with uh mammal paleontologists and things like that um, but the the Ross's attitude, the the lame jokes all the time. That's that's us. Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. The best paleontologist, the best scientist, is the craziest, wackiest scientist who like to express their it, love for science. Exactly. <laughs> is there something you can think of that you wish people knew about your area of research, even more broadly about paleontology, whether it be you know that there are different types or something that people tend to get wrong is there something that you wish people just knew yeah uh, that's, that's a very very good question rose so we are it's really really difficult everyone to try and understand or even just to think about what a dinosaur might have looked like or just any organism that's been fossilized right so the thing is when we fossilize something mostly we preserve hard materials so bone Whereas soft material like hair, skin, doesn't usually preserve. So if we think about it, if we take a, a skeleton of uh, what's a big? Uh, here we go, an elephant. If we take the skeleton of an elephant, we you know and preserved it, um, just the skeleton. So not permafrost like mammoths, just the skeleton. We wouldn't have the trunk preserved. Oh. No trunk. It would probably be a lot skinnier. Because it's a lot fatter, right? Elephants carry a lot, a lot of um, weight on them, so they don't have to drink as often, you know, eating, things like that. And so that's the thing, you know, there's a lot of things. We wouldn't probably wouldn't even know that they have hair on them. Wow. And that's the thing, you know, so it becomes very difficult to try and understand what past creatures look like. However, we do get some insight. So we have found uh, preserved feathers on um, Archaeopteryx, uh, as well as a couple of other raptor species as well. So that tells us that, you know, it's maybe most of the raptors might have been feathered and this has kind of led to that adaption of feathers for flight, right? So using feathers first off as insulation. So if we think of maybe a baby chicken and they got like lots of that little bottom flap, I like to call it a little bottom flap. And, you know, and as they get older, that falls out and they get nice big feathers. That's kind of the same concept. They start off with this very kind of loose feathery assemblage and then they evolve into these better feathers that they start adapting for gliding and then now they're starting to use them for flight like to beat wings now so it's it's very difficult we can't usually can't get colors either yeah uh, we have found one color red 
preserved. Huh. Yep. So, um, but that was in arboreal creatures. So organisms living in trees and thing. Which you know, if we think about um, in America, you got you know red raccoon. In Australia, we've got a lot of things that are red as well because of the dirts. So it's you know that organism that's adapting how it looks to better fit in with its environment. How interesting. So we need to almost understand more about the environment to make inferences as to what they uh, might have looked like. Not not really. So the environment's more about the colour. Okay. Yeah. So environment will tell us about colour, patterns, things okay. like that, right? So if we think about um, cheetah's a really good one, right? So it's yellow with black dots. It would stand out a lot if it was in the snow. Yeah. Yeah. If it was in the snow, it'd be white. So we can use environments to infer colours. In terms of how the animal actually looks, we have to rely a lot on the actual fossil itself. If there's any living relatives of it, um, you know, so try and figure out a good example is uh, ammonoids. So those are kind of like nautiluses that we have today. Yeah. Um, they have the same shell shape and things like that. So we think the organism, because we don't really have any soft material preserved of that. So we think it's probably the same, you know, acted the same way things like that so yeah it's you know trying to draw as many links as possible it's once again you know kind of this jigsaw puzzle you have different parts and we've got to try and fit as many together as we can before we can get a picture sometimes it's really hard to get a picture but we still have to get a picture so you know this is the whole science is wrong you know when we're doing things you know we'll publish a paper and it's like this is what we think it looked like and then oh no You're quite passionate about science communication. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about your love of expressing yourself through even clothing and stuff to show how much you love paleontology. Because obviously podcasts, we can't see you. So I have a lot of custom bow ties that I wear um, that are all paleontology inspired. I also have plushies of, you know, mammoths, trilobites. I got Archaeopteryx, which is the first confirmed bird and discovered it the um, feathers, uh, triceratops, which were the first species we identified juvenile forms in, ankylosaurs, which they, um, had a big bone club tail, and uh, we have an Australian version. It was the first complete dinosaur we ever found. You wow. know, So I wear them a lot <laughs> with me when I do talks and things like that. And, yeah, I have a very long list of planning to get dinosaur and paleontology tattoos as well. <laughs> and so right. the, the list is endless. Yeah. I think that's quite a common thing for scientists to want to express their love for what yeah. they've studied through their appearance or, you know, through accessorising. Do you think that that helps you engage people in paleontology? Oh, 100%. 100%. Um, you know, with, with, the, with the little plush toys I have on me, I sometimes put, like, a little one on my back, like it's crawling up my back, and I'll be, you know, doing a talk or something or doing some things with kids, and they'll go, oh, my God, you got something on your back. You're like, where, 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 where? <laughs> you know, and, and so it, it's a way to get them drawn into that science is that kind of fun factor. To finish up, this yes. is probably the question I've been looking forward to asking the most. Yes. I would like, and I'm sure everyone would like, a fun fact about paleontology that you could take to a party or maybe you've just changed workplace and you need to impress your colleagues or maybe you need to, I don't know, I work with kids as well, impress a child with a good fun fact about paleontology. What is your go-to fun fact? Go to fun fact. I got two. Okay. I'll, gi I'll give you two. Two yeah, for you get one. Yeah. Oof. Bonus fun fact. Cool. <laughs> so, a really cool one is dinosaurs still exist today. Ooh. Yeah. Just 
Just leave that. Yeah. So um, birds are still technically dinosaurs. Ah. Yeah. So dinosaurs did not go extinct. Uh, the, a major branch of them went extinct, but also a branch continued on to become birds today. So that's that Archaeopteryx. I was kind of talking about the discovery of feathers in dinosaurs, and then we continue on. And if we actually have a look at the skeleton of a chicken, it is very similar to uh, a lot of uh, raptors and things wow. like that. Wow. Yeah. Well, that is a good one. I like that. Yeah. And the second one. So this is an Australia-specific one. Okay. Drop bears were real. What? Okay. <laughs> you won't get that reaction. <laughs> oh. Okay, I'm really glad you gave us two. What's the... Please explain. Yeah. So um, it was not called a drop bear. It was called Thylacoleocarn effects. Oof. Oof. It's a big name. Yeah. It's a big name. But basically what it means... Um, so thyla is thylacine. Yes. It's, a, it's an Australian version of mammal. Okay. Uh, Leo means lion-like. Um, and I can't remember what kind of effects means. That's okay. <laughs> That's okay. But basically we have a lion-like mammal. And so this is very closely related, believe it or not, to wombats. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> what did it What did it look like and where did it live? It lived in trees. Oh. <laughs> so what we're looking at is kind of a... It would have been up to... Let's look. Uh, probably higher than our chairs okay. tall. It would have been standing. So um, like a metre tall? Because a metre Yeah, yeah may, maybe, Just under maybe a, a little bit lower. Okay. Yep, yep. It had opposable thumbs like us. Wow. But massive claws on it. Huh. On the opposable thumb. So kind of like, you know, how we think of raptors as the big slicing claws. But it used these claws, um, and also on its feet, to climb trees. Wow. So it, what it would do, yeah, it would climb trees, and it had a big, heavy tail like a kangaroo for stabilisation. Wow. And would basically, what we think is we would th- think it jumps out of the trees and would attack its prey. That's a drop bear. That's a drop bear, right? Wow. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. What was the evidence for that animal? Uh, so we found complete skeletons in South Australia in caves, which is really awesome. Um, the really cool thing about it uh, is, so if we think of lions, cats, dogs, they have big canines, correct? Even us as humans, we still have canines. Because phytocleocarnifex evolved from a herbivore, so it only ate veggies, so it had no canines whatsoever. It didn't have canines. Mm. What it did have was in sizes like us, M3s, which is just before your molars, yeah, and molars. And so basically what happened was, much like a rat, it got very, very big in sizes, and its uh, M3s, basically, uh, so that's their premolar, became like big bolt cutters. Oh. And so that would shear through bone. Wow. That's terrifying. <laughs> terrifying, but cool. Yeah. But yeah, so that would take out... Um, Organisms like uh, wombats, the size of big four-wheel drives. Wow. Diprotodon. Yeah. And kangaroos, the size of trees. And, you know, probably the size of this roof is how big some kangaroos were. And this thing, even though it was a lot smaller than them, it was uh, nice, big, strong-shouldered. And, yeah. Drop, it would drop, drop out of the tree. Secret attack. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us today, Liam. Thank you so much for having me, Rose. Thank you for listening to the Particle Podcast. You can check out more of our content on all of the socials as well as particle.scitech.org.au. This episode was recorded, as always, in the beautiful science hub that is Western Australia. Particle is powered by SciTech.